First, dentistry was painless, then bicycles were chainless, carriages were horseless, and many laws enforceless. Next, cookery was fireless, telegraphy was wireless, cigars were nicotineless, and coffee caffeineless. Soon oranges were seedless, the putting green was weedless, the college boy was hatless, the proper diet fatless. New motor roads were, are dustless, the latest steel is rustless, our tennis courts are sodless, our new religion godless. That poem was written by Arthur Gutterman in 1936. And what I find interesting about that is the last line, right? The new religion is godless. I think whenever the pain and suffering question is the most ask question that people would ask God, it often does lead people to believing that quite probably there must be this religion that they choose to live in where there is no God. Because that indeed is the easiest answer for their question. But it doesn't inoculate them against the pain and the suffering, does it? Because suffering transcends all class and race and ethnicity and culture. Suffering is a part of the human condition. By show of hands, how many of us in the room have never had pain? (laughs) No, we're not going to raise our hand because we all have experienced it at some level. And so then lives are often lived with this an attempt to protect from the pain. And so we keep to ourselves because you know what? If we don't get so close to people, then maybe we won't get hurt as much. Or maybe others choose to numb themselves because they have been in so much pain that then they choose addictions to gravitate to. Maybe it's sex or alcohol or drugs, both illegal and prescribed. Or maybe it's the addiction of just spending money. Because if I can spend enough money on stuff, maybe somehow, some way that can numb me enough. Many are too scared to ask the big questions, fearing the answers that they will get. Because you know what they figure is maybe the answer just isn't out there. And so then what happens? Well, then, you know, it becomes an impossible fix. And that's too difficult for some of our minds to grasp because we are in a fix-it-yesterday kind of life. We want the fix now. Some get angry at God. Some cry out to God. Some abandon him because they feel as if they've been abandoned by God. And some feel actually as they walk through difficult circumstances more confused than ever. Many, though, would say, ah, you know what? I know God loves me. And I trust his heart. And that First Peter verse that we just looked at a moment ago, that's, That's what I'm banking on because in the midst of pain and evil and suffering and injustice and uncertainty, I'm going to trust him. And so we enter this subject and now we can just take a deep breath and let's set the stage, right, on a few preconditions before we step into this topic that most of you have probably, if you've been around church, heard at least a sermon or two on. But what I hope we are able to do tonight is not only dive deep, but also dive deep in a way that makes things very applicable. So that when we walk out of here, even if this is not something we're going to use tomorrow, we could use it the next day or the next or the next as we encounter others, maybe ourselves, in the midst of difficult times. Well, number one, I just wanted to set the stage by saying that questioning God is normal. Just in case you haven't been reminded lately, God is big enough 
to handle our feelings and our emotions, our anger, whatever. So I don't know what all you may have come into this room with tonight, but the truth is God's not going to zap us with a big bolt of lightning for verbalizing what it is that he already knows is inside of our hearts. He's quite aware of the questions that you feel rising up within you or the anger that is there. The psalmist expressed what most of us feel at some point in life in Psalm 77, 9. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Number two, all our questions will not be answered right now. Isn't that a comforting thought? We don't always get to know the reason and people who are often hurting, often get put off by Christians by us trying to give them a quick and easy answer for what has caused the hurting, for maybe why they're in the mess that they are. And we should be very careful to not give easy answers to the pain and suffering that's in the world. Matter of fact, I would say that one of the easy answers that we often give as Christians is, well, God is sovereign. And what I would say to you is, while that's biblically true, Someone who's in the midst of their pain and suffering says, so what? <laughs> this is how I feel. And I don't understand. First Corinthians, Paul writes these words for all of us who follow Christ. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I, I'm convinced more now than ever before as I connect with people who are hurting that one of the best answers we can possibly give them is probably the one that's found in Psalm 46, verse 10. And that is this, there, is this, there are times when we are just to be still and to know that he is God. I think number three is we, are, we, are, we, we live in a cause and effect world and actions have consequences. Now we know that and we just kind of did a little fun little thing with Silas to kind of demonstrate that to some degree. And sometimes we suffer because of our sin, and sometimes we suffer because of the sin of another. Maybe it's a drunk driver or a murderer or our parents get divorced or there's a botched surgery or a cheating spouse. But I want you to look at what this psalmist writes. As a matter of fact, if I didn't tell you this beforehand, we're diving into quite a few scriptures tonight. I wanted us to lay a really good groundwork for this so that it's not just Randy's thoughts, but really what does God have to say about this? So that we can have a fairly decent, succinct theology on pain and suffering. In Psalm 10, verses 1 and 2, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. God, I turn on the TV and there is bad stuff happening. Why, 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 why do you allow this to happen? And the psalmist goes on, and we won't, we won't read all the verses, but he speaks about those who are wicked and those who renounce the Lord and that they curse God and they're deceitful and they oppress people and they crush the helpless and they seize the poor and they murder the innocents. So many people suffering. I mean, is that not what we see in our world? What is ISIS doing today? Look at Syria. Look at cops that are gunned down in our cities. The hate the racism, the list goes really, really, really long, right? But here's what happens. The psalmist turns the corner and says, but God, here we come, verse 14, you do see, you hear the desire of the afflicted, you will strengthen their heart, you will incline your ear 
to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Yeah, we, we do live in a world with cause and effect. One more introductory thought. Number four, we've been given the opportunity to choose. Any idea how many decisions you've made today? Psychologists suggest that quite possibly from the time that we woke up until the time that we will go to bed tonight, an adult will have made 35,000 decisions. So it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of decisions. No, no wonder I'm tired when I go to bed. <laughs> God's created us with the ability to choose the freedom to make choices that have both negative and positive consequences for me and for others and for our world. And if we were to just get gut level honest, some of us have entered the worship experience tonight frustrated with God. But the truth is, the truth is, our lives have been greatly impacted by the choices of others. And although we are so very frustrated with God, God didn't abuse us. And God didn't make our spouse cheat on us. He didn't allow, he didn't walk out on our marriage. He didn't allow that car to come across our path. God didn't make the choices that led to our companies going broke. And you may say, but he didn't stop it from happening either. And I would say, yes, no, that's true. And we're going to spend a good chunk of the next few minutes unpacking that. And why he chooses not to protect us from every negative experience that we might ever encounter in this life. For some of us, it comes down to decisions that we really have made that have negatively impacted us. God didn't make you choose other things over him. He didn't drive a wedge between you and your spouse or you and your son or you and your daughter or you and your grandkids. He didn't tempt you to sin. That's not his character. That goes against his character. So the truth is we often blame God for other people's sin and for our own sin, both indirectly and directly. And when the, rea- when the reality is we are both blessed and we are the victims of this little thing that God's given us called choice. So that's a little bit of laying the groundwork. I would say as we jump in, well, let's read these verses about choice. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, what does God encourage us to do? He encourages to choose with every decision life. Let's go back to the beginning. Conservative theologians, um, when they discuss Lucifer, when they discuss Satan, they, they tie together some passages in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. Matter of fact, I was looking back at just sermons that I've preached over the last four years here, and I haven't preached that much at all. I mean, I've referenced Satan. I've referenced Lucifer. And maybe one of the reasons that pastors in general these days kind of shy away from him is because um, there's a wide varying difference theologically on what people believe about him, about where he started and how he became who he was, who he is. But if we go back to the beginning based on conservative theologians, what we find is that Ezekiel was describing in Ezekiel chapter 28, Satan, who was the true king of Tyre. He was actually the motivating force behind that evil king. And there are 20 descriptive elements that are identified in the Ezekiel passage, and 16 of them are actually also found in this Isaiah chapter 14 passage that was written 150 years earlier. And so what that's led them to believe is that Uh, there's this conclusion that these passages are describing this fall 
of Satan. That these correlating passages come together and create this theology of this worship leader in the heavens who is created by God because God is the creator of everything. Matter of fact, let's read that. Colossians 1, 16. For by him, God, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so what what we find as we kind of push these passages together, not only in Ezekiel, but also in Isaiah and in Colossians, we find that this, this Satan or Lucifer is this light bearer, the word Lucifer, this brilliant one, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 14, and that he is a being of great beauty, not necessarily the one depicted by maybe a Stephen King movie, right? that he was set apart, that he was a cherub, that he was one of three classes of angels, and that he was a guardian, that he was in a position of leadership. Uh, We believe potentially he was this, this worship leader in the heavens that had choice. And in his choice, what he chose was pride. And because of that pride, fell from perfection. Did God create sin? No. Did Lucifer choose to go against God? Yes. And so we move to creation, the earth, Adam, Eve, created with choice, fruit, don't eat it. Tempted by the serpent, by Satan. But they still had a choice. Listen to the creator or not. Choose to obey or not. They chose not to obey. And then here comes the punishment, Genesis chapter 13. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat uh, bread till you return to the dust. For out of it, you were taken. For you are dust and to dust, you shall return the fall creates this separation between humanity and God and fellowship with God. And they are kicked out of the garden and they realize they are naked and they hide from God. Now fast forward. What happens as we continue to move through these pages? We find that God, that man shifts and no longer is worshiping God who is greater than him and instead chooses to go this direction and to worship little g God's idols. And the fall corrupts people's relationships with each other's and rivals are made and enemies occur. Nations are split. Slavery is there. The fall spoils our relationship with the earth. We were meant to supervise and to cultivate it and instead it turns against us, even the earth, and becomes this uncooperative partner with man. When sin entered the equation, everything becomes spoiled. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered, or sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what are the consequences of sin? Wow, it's, it's everywhere, right? It's, it's death and decay around us, physical death and decay of this earth, emotional and relational disappointment, spiritual separation and darkness, a fallen world and sinful people. 
So in the midst of all that awfulness, here's the question. Okay, God, are you not big enough? Do you not care? Will you not do something about this? Is God incapable of dealing with this corruption? Does he just not want to? Are his hands tied for some reason? Has he tied his own hands? Is he incapable of intervening to lessen our pain? We've spent the last several weeks talking about, yes, there indeed is a God, and Jesus is his son, and Jesus is divine, and he is real. And so if you are real, why do you allow this, God? God is still God. God is just as powerful after the fall as he was before it. All-powerful is his character. And sometimes he chooses to intervene, and sometimes he does not. But that all gets wrapped up into his character too, because you see, within his character, he's also all-wise. So not only is he all-powerful, he could intervene anytime he wants to, he's also all-wise, which means at any moment, he may choose to make a decision that we just cannot begin to comprehend, only because he sees a much bigger picture. He sees it all, and he's the ultimate redeemer. So what are the possibilities then? If God is all-powerful, then whether I've done it to myself or other people have inflicted pain on me or this fallen world has, okay, so why, Randy? Why, God? Why is this happening to me? And this is not a comprehensive list by any stretch of the imagination. Number one, I believe we find in Scripture that oftentimes people wind up in pain and suffering because it draws us closer to God. The psalmist in 119.67 writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I I think we could line up person after person on this stage, even in our own body here at Rock Point, that would say, yeah, you know what? Here's what happened. I wasn't walking with God, but God used very difficult circumstances to pull me into a very intimate place with him. I think... Number two, others often get to see God's power in the midst of pain and suffering. God is glorified. And, you know, all of these are not mutually exclusive, right? Oftentimes they get all jumbled up, and there's lots of, there are a variety of different reasons. John 9, 1 through 3, here's this passage here. You ready for this? Yeah, we know this story. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, Jesus did. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Whoa, tough passage. See, it was the thinking of the day that suffering was just for punishment of sin. Surely that's what the driving factor was. What did you do? I mean, that's what Job's friends were asking him, right? What did you do? What did you do to deserve this, Job? And Job's going, you got to hear this. Wait. Let's go on because a lot of these tie together, right? I think oftentimes God sees the greater need, which is redemption. If we continue in the story, verse 3b, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. How did that happen? You remember the rest of the story? You remember what happened? So the man, uh, Jesus, uh, takes some of his spit and some dirt and makes some mud and has the guy rub it into his eyes, right? And, he, and he's able to see. And so all of a sudden, now, here's this man who is fully restored And then he gets tossed out by the Pharisees. He's ridiculed by them. And Jesus finds him and reveals to the guy that, yes, he is, in fact, the Son of God. And in a very intimate encounter with Jesus, Jesus reveals to him in a way really 
unlike almost any other encounter with any other person in his three and a half years of ministry, Jesus shows up and says, listen, here's who I am, dude. And this guy falls to his face and bows down and worships him. This blind guy who is healed and then ridiculed. And if you just stop there, you go, whoa, this roller coaster that this dude was on. What's the purpose? Come on. Well, Jesus gave us the answer already. He said, listen, it's that the works of God might be displayed in him. It was ultimately for what? That his eyes would see? So that he could just go to hell one day with his sight? No, it was for his redemption. God sees the greater need. Number four, discipline is felt due to willful disobedience. We saw discipline exerted in Genesis 3. We've already read that. What happened to Adam and Eve? They get exited out of the garden, right? But there are other verses that support that truth as well. What about Hebrews? Hebrews 12, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So what happens here? God, I believe in this passage, is telling us, listen, I'm going to use discipline to correct and to mature. Because you know what? Nothing is going to get wasted. Nothing in your life I want wasted. Everything is going to get used. I, <laughs> I don't know about you. I'm, I'm not a guy who has typically lived my life needing alarm clocks. I'm just, I just, I just, I've got this internal clock inside of me that just says it's time to get up. I'm that warped person that enjoyed eight o'clock classes, even in college and seminary. Matter of fact, I went through four and a half years of college, never using an alarm clock, but having eight o'clock classes every semester. Oh, weird, right? I was never late. I just wake up, just go. No matter how, how late I, how, how late it was that I was sleeping, I just, I just wake up and go. So last week, um, and, you know, I, I, I've, I've set my alarm clock at different times just as like a backup because I know at some point it's going to happen. And last week I didn't set it. And I'd had a long couple of days. Saturday night rolls around. And I went to bed late. And I woke up. And it was like 20 till 9. And I had a meeting at 9.15 here. I was teaching a parents thing over in the hall down the way. I had missed an 8 o'clock meeting. I mean, I mean, like, all of a sudden, I mean, the internal clock was, the alarm was gone, right? And I'm coming in all apologetic. I'm so sorry. I can't believe I was in charge of this meeting, you know, and I wasn't even here. And they're all looking at me like, you're weird. And I mean, just crazy. Alarms. What, how, how, do we, how do we treat them? For some of us, it's like, ah, snooze. For others of us, you know, it's like the, the hotel you go to. I know they don't do that a whole lot anymore. I mean, we probably could ask them and they'll still do it. But for the most part, we all use our own alarms when we're in hotels, right? Our phones. You can call them and get a wake-up call and they'll, they'll call you. And you can kind of say, okay, fine, and close the, close the ringer back down. And then all of a sudden, just go back to sleep. And I think sometimes God uses experiences in our lives as a spiritual wake-up call of sorts. I think it's an alarm that goes off. Think number five, a spiritual wake-up call at times in our life is needed. So yeah, I believe we can easily tie this to the previous reason that in our disobedience, God gets our attention and disciplines, but it is a wake-up call that is for our good. Hebrews chapter 12 says, but he disciplines us for our good. 
that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There are decisions that we make that have negative consequences that push us toward, wow, a peaceful fruit of righteousness from God's perspective. And I think this point ties really well with the next because I believe also God sees our need for maturity. We talked about this. We talked about this, was it last week? We were talking about that big word, sanctification. That he, he uses this to move us to look more and more like his son, Jesus. Look at, um, well, let me give you an example. If you were to go on a tour of the Great Barrier Reef, what would you discover? You would discover that on the lagoon side of the Barrier Reef, they would l- load you into those glass bottom boats and let you peer down into the water. Some of you may have done this, and you look down, and it is boring. It's lifeless. It's colorless. If you've been on the lagoon side of any reef, there's there's stuff to look at, but it's nothing like on the ocean side. Because on the ocean side, where the waves continually come, where there's, it's continually tested, there's a completely different look because it has been challenged and it changes and adapts and grows healthy and grows strong and reproduces. And it is a thing of beauty. And I believe that just in the same way that God uses nature to show us that he does so to remind us, listen, this is our life as well. Romans 5, 2 through 5, and James 1, 2 through 4, really one in the same passage. You'll see what I mean. Romans 5, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and has been given to us. Now look at James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." And so what happens is that there's this pain and suffering that occurs in our life through these two passages describe it as suffering through trials. And what does God's ultimate end become? Look at the end there. It says that we would have hope, that it would produce character, that we would be steadfast, that we would be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Nothing. And so at times, God holds back from moving in and protecting us from the storm of life or from the consequence of somebody else because he's looking at the bigger picture and saying, no, 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 the way that I've created humanity is that there are moments in your life that are going to push you to become more and more like Jesus. And that is... My friend, is the choices that we make as we open his word and respond to that adversity. That respond when we respond to whatever it is that's occurring in our life. So what about those of us tonight who would say, man, I'm in that storm. I feel like I've been dumped on in a pretty significant way. A couple of thoughts. We can receive his grace and comfort daily. 
In 2 Corinthians verse 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Sometimes, crazy as it sounds, we, we work really hard at rejecting God's comfort. It's, it's like that old story, you probably heard it before, where the guy has got this big, huge, uh, uh, burdensome uh, sack upon his, uh, on his back, and he's walking along the road, and this, this guy uh, rides up in this wagon and says, hey, hop in, you know. And so he's like, oh, wow, that is so great. And he hops in, he's sitting in the wagon, the guy's going along, and after a while he turns around and looks at the guy, and the guy's still got this weight on his back, and he's like, dude, you could take that off. And he's like, oh, no, man, I mean, you've already done so much, I wouldn't want to burden you by, 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 by having to deal with me and my load. And, and that's a silly thought, right? I mean, that's just a silly picture. But that's so silly, and yet it's so us. Because God's like, listen, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we're like, oh, that's so good. I just, I'll, just, I'll just keep holding on to this, Jesus. Because, you know, this right here, this right here, what all these people have done to me, you know, what, what I've missed out on, the unfairness of my life, what I've missed out on because, you know, I didn't get that option. I didn't get that opportunity. Those people did this to me. I wasn't enough of this. I wasn't enough of that. You know, this has become my identity, God. So the truth is, I think I'll just keep holding on to it. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And maybe that's just what you needed to hear tonight. More than just a theology of pain and suffering. Number two, God really is trustworthy. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. God knows how the puzzle fits together in the end. And as we looked at last week in Ephesians, he really is the master craftsman. His work in you is a workmanship that he's created long before you ever knew you were you. And he can be trusted even though the puzzle piece you're holding doesn't make a lot of sense right now. Last two, we can remember life is temporary and ultimate justice is coming. Sometimes we're so tempted to toss out that word. Well, it's unfair. It's just unfair. Can I just remind you, this, this isn't all that there is. And in the unfairness of the moment, remember that we have a God who is the ultimate judge and jury. I get it. I've lived it. It can be unfair. But I guess what I also wanted you to know is it's okay for us to ask the why question. And this goes back to the very beginning of the sermon as we get close to the end here. God isn't offended by our questions. As a matter of fact, although we may not get an immediate response, I believe God's Spirit does help us move toward any direction, though, of repentance or confession or forgiveness that is needed by a decision that we've made or by a decision that someone's made against us. And so asking the question of why does allow us to open up to the Holy Spirit, diving in and saying, this is what you need to do. No, you know what? I get it. I appreciate you being honest with me, Randy, but here's what you did, Randy. And I know you're hurting right now, but here's what you need to do. So sometimes the why question points us to a response that might be uncomfortable, but necessary as a part of our healing. Last, 
We can use suffering as an opportunity to show the love of Christ. We can share the hope that is in us. We can help others in the midst of our pain. I'm not even going to take you to 2 Corinthians 1. You know that response, but let's go back to the first verse we read tonight. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, His sovereign will, as He plays that out in our lives, as we suffer, we are to entrust our souls to a faithful Creator while what? While doing good. <laughs> That's a power. There, there, we could spend five weeks on that, on that, on that verse. Because you know what that verse doesn't say? It doesn't say, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. And when they're finished suffering, does it? It says, you know, in the midst of it all, here's what we are called to do. To keep doing good. To keep following him. To keep moving forward in his direction with our eyes open to a world that desperately needs us as broken ones, to enter in and say, yes, I am messed up. I have done things that were way beyond the pale. And in my brokenness, I want to walk the trail with you. So real quick, in a practical way, as we're walking the trail with others in the storms of life, when others are in the storm, some thoughts about what not to do. And you know, some of you are like, going to be offended. Okay, I get it. You're going to be offended because you're going to be like, Randy, why would you even say those things? Of course we would never do these. But, you know, we're going to look at them for the same reason that you look at some of the things that people post about what not to do with certain objects in your home and go, why would they put that there? Because people have done that, right? Let's not tell people how they should feel. Let's not tell people that you know how they feel because we don't. And let's make sure that we don't tell people that we know why they're suffering because we're not God. And I just listed off a few reasons that people may be suffering, but we don't know the why for you or you or you. Let's not try to minimize other people's suffering either because they feel what they feel. And you know who we're most tempted sometimes to do that with? Our kids. Let's take a deep breath and make sure that we allow them to feel. Don't tell people the suffering will end if they just have more faith. You don't know when the end will come. And that statement also assumes that they might be suffering because of lack of it. And that may be very far from the truth. I hope this goes without saying, but we have to make sure we don't lecture people in their suffering because they don't need it. And along those lines, we want to make sure that we don't misuse 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Because yes, we are to comfort because we ourselves have been comforted. But you know what? Even so, it's not about us. It's about him. It's not about what you are to do for somebody else. It's always about him. So what should we do? We should be there, and yet we should also give space. We have to find the balance. We should be available, and yet at the same time be patient. This says, listen, I'm here, but I'm not rushing you. We should listen and show compassion. And maybe, just maybe at the right time, we may, circle the word may, have the opportunity to point them toward the greatest sympathizer of all. There were moments, I've, I've shared with you this story before, but um, when I was in Oklahoma City, I was about to come back to Fort Worth to finish my seminary degree. And um, I, had, I had stopped serving at the church I was serving in at that time. And uh, I was getting my oil changed. And uh, all of a sudden there was a jolt. And I thought my car had fallen off of the rigging 
Um, and I thought, wow, what, what in the world? And I went over the window and nothing was there. And then a few minutes later, I was looking up at the screen and I saw the Murrow Federal Building. And, um, and so I, I, I immediately just kind of, I didn't have anything else to do. I, I wasn't going back to school anytime soon. I was a couple, couple months off. So I just kind of ran to the, to the crash, so to speak. And they, um, they allowed me to, to, to sit in with those families for the next two weeks as one of just a handful of counselors who were in this secured location and just listen and show compassion and be patient. And this whole wave of emotion would roll over these people as they watched the monitors believing that there was a sound that maybe occurred in the building. And that surely was Uncle Fred because Uncle Fred or Daddy or whoever always went for a smoke break at nine, nine o'clock in the morning after he had been there for a couple hours. So surely he's the one that they heard in the basement, you know, and he's alive. And so this hope would spring up inside of them. And then all of a sudden they would be dashed whenever I would bring them up to the fourth floor of that building along with the investigators and sit there next to them when they said that they had found Uncle Fred's or Dad's or Mom's body or their little two-year-old's body. And then all of a sudden, although it might have been a week or 10 days later, the emotions and the, and, and the feelings just crashed in on them as if it had just happened. And in that moment, it was not the right moment to say, but you know, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It was in that moment that all they needed was just arms and tears. And I've probably done it wrong more than I've done it right. But I know there are people in that mix that weeks later invited me to family members' funerals. That questions started to happen. And in those conversations, Jesus was finally mentioned. Sometimes at the right time might be weeks or months or years off. That's what I have to say. So tied to Jesus because you know what? I remember tragedies in my own life where people would come up and give me the quick answer. And it was just like all I could do to just go, kapow, you don't understand. And I don't like what you're saying right now. But Jesus is the greatest sympathizer of all. And in Hebrews chapter 4, he describes him this way. Last verse tonight. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is there. And I can say I have experienced pain and suffering at the hands of others and at my own hand. And at times, for whatever reason, God has allowed the filter of protection to be removed. And my reactions have been varied. But I know this, that God is good and that he is worthy to be praised. And that if we let him, he'll use it all to move us to look more like Jesus. And so if there's maybe, just maybe one thing you heard tonight, maybe it was just, ha, I can come just as I am with what I'm feeling, with what I know with the questions I have. And it's not going to be offensive to God. And he's in this moment. I'm just going to invite you to bow with me. Father, thank you for walking with us through this mini theology of pain and suffering. God, I, I, I can't even begin to believe that I've done it justice in any <laughs> credible way. 
There's so much there. But God, I know that I have been the recipient of your mercy and grace, your faithfulness and truth, your compassion. And God, I know that as you have been faithful, it has deepened my resolve to trust you no matter what. And so God, I pray that tonight, that God, regardless of where we are in this crowd, with, th- with thunderous questions or resolve that our questions will not be answered and just standing in the light of you to say we believe and trust in the midst. God, thank you for meeting us with some truth. Thank you for reminding us of your character. God, help us in our unbelief. And God, as we take time now to consider your son, to have communion, to give, God, may it be all for your glory. So my encouragement is to use this time, that you would use this time as Michael sings, as the band plays, as the candles flicker. Maybe it's just a conversation you need to have with God. Use this time. Maybe you'd like to have a conversation later with me. I'll be here. I'd love to visit. But whatever God is doing, don't shut it down now because this is the moment where I believe He reminds you or he tells you why it is he wanted you here tonight. Take some time.